Well, I know that the screens have kind of blinked a, little, a couple times, so I'm not sure if we're online, but if you are joining us online, I want to look into the camera and say welcome to our service today. And to all of you who are in the room, I want to say that my name is Matt Ritchie. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and it's my joy and privilege to kind of lead you through this service. Pastor Keith is in Kenya right now. Um, our team was in Kenya uh, a few days ago. They are back, and uh, they're just trying to recruit everybody to go to Kenya now, so watch out. You might be recruited. But uh, Pastor Keith went back on a solo trip and he's exploring some new territory. I understand he's literally literally in a desert and it's about 110, 115 uh, degrees or so. And he's exploring some, some of you wish you were there. You're like, man, this snow, I could use 110 degrees right now. When, when I woke up this morning and I saw that, I was a little bit mad. I, uh, I have to be honest, not in an unrighteous way. It was all Christ-like, I promise. But um, I was just a little surprised and Anyways, but uh, thank you so much for braving braving the elements and joining us today. Uh, If you're new with us, if you're a guest with us, I would invite you to take advantage of what we call our next steps wall out here in the corridor. And if you would like to know who we are as a church, what we believe, or just just basic questions, how you might connect or get involved, uh, just please stop by the next steps wall and we'd love to talk with you. Also, if you call Grace Bible Church home and you came today and you give or you came prepared to give, I would just want to say thank you so much for your investment in the life of our church. And I already mentioned Kenya. Your dollars are literally going around the world, but also they're at work in our community. In fact, if you came through the coffee shop doors, which is kind of our central entrance, you might have seen the words on the wall for our city. We have a host of of people that we support, ministries we support that are local and obviously within our church as well. And so I just want to say thank you for supporting the mission and the vision that God has called us to be on as a church. And if you came prepared to give, you can give online or at the boxes in the back. We have a some remodeling going on up here, and so things are changing even as we speak, and so we're trying to expand and, and have a, a few more seats for services just like this, uh, but again, I just want to say thank you for the difference you are making, and again, pray for our pastor as he's gone, and I guess you're stuck with me for the next few moments. I hope that's okay. So let's dive into our sermon uh, for today. Um, the message that I have um, been assigned is with the title, Why We Need the Church, and before we jump in, I'm going to ask you to turn into your, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Romans 8, and also Matthew 16. Ephesians chapter 5, Romans 8, and Matthew 16. And just to kind of set us up, have you ever, maybe you were a kid when this happened, have you ever been a part of like a club, like an exclusive group? Maybe it was as sophisticated as no girls allowed, like maybe that was what you were a part of when you were a kid, or maybe when you got a little older, maybe middle school or high school, maybe there was a certain lunch table you sat at, and uh, all of you homeschoolers, you're feeling a little left out, I apologize, but... um, you know, like even when I went to a, I went to a very small Christian school when I was growing up, and I always sat with the same friends like every day, and there was like just a handful of us, but it was just sort of our routine. And then like there's probably sports teams that maybe maybe you were a part of, or a drama team, or a debate team, or anything. Like, have you ever been part of a group where you had to meet certain requirements to be a part of that group? Anybody? Okay. How many of you go to Costco? That counts. Okay, so like, okay. So now that I'm older, I'm like, I'm interested in like that exclusive club, uh, Costco membership. Like, 
That's what I'm interested in. So um, that's kind of what I'm talking about. So kind of think of that. Now, there was a certain organization or a building, actually. When I was growing up, I would drive by it frequently, and it was we just simply called it the VFW. The VFW is uh, uh, three letters that stand for Veterans of Foreign Wars. And I always kind of wondered what was inside that building. It kind of looked a little bit like a church, had a parking lot, and kind of a, looked like a community center of some kind. But you know, I never once considered entering through the doors because the requirements to, that I assumed to be inside that building was you had to be a veteran of a foreign conflict. You had to be a member of the armed forces of the United States of America, and you needed to have experienced some kind of combat. In fact, I looked up the, the, the requirements that would allow you to be a member of the VFW. By the way, there's a chapter here in Boise, and it, you need to have a proof of honorable service. You can't have been discharged for any dishonorable reasons. You need to have a good standing with our military. You need to have proof of service in a war, campaign, or expedition on foreign soil or in hostile waters, and it must be proven by an authorized campaign medal and a receipt of hostile fire uh, pay or imminent danger pay. You can also be a part of the VFW if you have served in Korea for 30 consecutive days or 60 non-consecutive days. And so when I read that, I'm like, well, nope, didn't do that, didn't do that, didn't do that. Okay, I'm not a part of the VFW. I'm not going, Okay. Now, there's more exclusive, more, um, at least to me, more appealing clubs. Like, for example, a, a private golf club. Any golfers in the house? Oh, come on, John. Like, thank you. Like, you left me hanging. Okay. So, anyways, but two golfers, now, you might not agree with this, but two Golfers, the most prestigious golf course in my mind is Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia, where the Masters Tournament is played every year. And they have a membership. And the criteria to be a member is actually somewhat secret. It's rumored that you have to pay somewhere between $40,000 and $200,000 annually to be a member. And if you ask if you can be a member, you're immediately dropped off the list, okay? It, it's by invitation only. Like, again, it's kind of like, it's implied that you need to have some sort of wealth or, or leadership or some sort of important position. Um, I think some congressmen have, uh, have, a, have a membership. I think some athletes do. I'm not sure of all the people who are members, but it's very, very, very exclusive. And the privileges of being a part of that golf club is obviously you get to play the course, but you also get to invite friends and you get some privileges that comes with the membership. And when we think of those type of things, I think we all assume even when it comes to Costco, if I pay this fee, if I meet the criteria, then I get some sort of benefit or reward in return. And the title of our message today is Why We Need the Church, and I want to steer you kind of away from the assumption that if I'm going to be a part of the church, and I meet the criteria that even like Grace Bible Church has set up, then I should receive some sort of reward, benefit, or uh, compensation maybe. Because if I meet this criteria, there should be a reason I should receive some, some kind of benefit. Now let me just pause here and say there is a benefit to being a part of not just our church, but the church of God. 
but they're not in human terms. They're in eternal, what I would call eternal terms. And you might be sitting here today thinking, Matt, why are you preaching a message that says, that's entitled, why we need the church? We're here. Like, shouldn't, like, someone else be listening to this? Like, we're the ones here. But I think it's good that we all, at some level, are on the same page when it comes to our understanding of the kind of church we are called to be and what it should look like. So I want to give you a few things on that. Now, before we jump in, I want to define some terms because sometimes I can mean one thing and you hear another because we define the terms differently. So when I say the church, here's what I mean by that phrase, the church, for our purpose today. The church is the global or national church that includes all churches of evangelical and Protestant persuasion. I'm not including the Catholic Church or the Church of the Latter-day Saints. There's just simply too many differences in doctrine and practice. I'm not including those groups. It's also implied that I'm in, what I, when I refer to the church, that I'm talking about the, the church that is truly pursuing Jesus Christ and sets him up alone as its authority. And so there's some churches out there that may have this in name, but in practice, they're not submitted to the lordship of Christ. And so I wanted you to kind of, kind of just keep that definition in mind. And then when I say grace, um, for you maybe outsiders or guests or who are with us today, that's sort of how we refer to a, a, as our own church. So don't confuse that with God's grace or amazing grace or like my daughter's middle name is Grace. It's not a person, okay? And so when I say the word grace, I'm referring to our specific church. So just kind of keep that in mind today. Now, I want to also just address some assumptions to kind of set us up, because there may be somebody listening online or maybe sitting here today, and you're sort of skeptical about what the church is all about, because there's some, there's some negatives about the church that, honestly, there's some stereotypes that have been perpetuated by things that have actually happened. And you might be sitting here today as a skeptic and you're thinking, is this church just about my money? He just talked about giving and support, financial support. Do I have to give? Is this church all just want my money? And I would say this, yes, there are churches out there that, that all they care about is nickels and noses. Can I say it that way? But not all churches are interested in just your money. And I, I would say that we as a church here at Grace we're not just interested in something that you give to us so that we can use it for our own benefit. We want something for you. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that later, but I wanna say this church is not just about your money. We're not interested in your finances. There are churches out there that may be, but that's not all church. That's not all the churches. Church, you might have this assumption, um, well, the church just wants my time and my energy and my service. And there may be churches out there that just want your volunteer hours, but not all churches fall into that category. There may be churches out there that have a bunch of fake people sitting there or what we call hypocrites. There may be even churches with hypocritical leadership, but that does not represent the church of Christ accurately. And so even though there may be some churches that have some unhealthy leaders or unhealthy attenders, that does not represent the church of Christ. Some people might be sitting there thinking, well, I, I, the church is just wants some sort of control of my life. They just want to tell me what to do. And we want to guide people in healthy practice, but we're not interested in controlling your life. And neither is the church of Christ. 
Some people might say, well, I, I can't go to a church. I can't be a part of the church because it's too good for me. I've, I've messed up. I'm too, too, quote unquote, sinful or bad. And so it's only for good people. And so there's sort of this mentality that when you view the church, whether it's driving by or even in your mind, you're like, those people, they're too good for me. I'm not a good person. Therefore, it's not for me. I don't meet the criteria. And I want to remind you that, yes, there may be churches that have themselves positioned in a holier-than-thou posture, but that's not all churches. And then finally, you might just be thinking, well, the church is simply not for me. Like, I don't need it. And this is kind of where I want to press in. The church is for all of us, and all of us need the church. Here's some simple facts about the church. Jesus himself founded it. Jesus died for it, Jesus commissioned it, and Jesus is still leading it. And in spite of these facts, the church is not perfect. Now, I uh, just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. When I say these things about the church, you understand I'm talking about the people in the church, not the church building, correct? It's not just about the steeples and the, and like if you go across the globe, there's some incredible cathedrals and there's some places built for worship and we sometimes refer to as those buildings and this building as the church, but you understand that I'm talking about you and me. We're part of the church, right? And so we're not perfect. We're flawed. And in spite of that fact, in spite of the fact that we are flawed people who are running, And sometimes stumbling after Jesus, Jesus still loves the church. He founded it. He died for it. He commissioned it. And he is still at the head of Grace Bible Church. And he is still at the head of his church. Amen? Okay. So, now, uh, just to give you a little bit of historical context. So, in the New Testament, there was a term, a Greek term that was used to to describe the New Testament church. It's the term ekklesia. And uh, all that meant was that it was a simple gathering for political or religious purposes. And in in Jewish culture, they kind of borrowed that term and applied it to the New Testament gathering of Christians. It also borrowed from the Hebrew word kahal, which was Uh, simply meant assembly or congregation. And so you might be thinking, well, what Pastor Matt is talking about is I just need to come in here on a Sunday and sit in a service and that makes me a part of the church. Well, I wanna add some detail to that because the scriptures use some metaphors to, to, to take us beyond just the idea that this is a religious gathering. It's, it's more than just coming in and attending a service. So what is the church and what should the church look like? I'm gonna borrow from these metaphors to kind of add some detail to it. First of all, if you're taking notes, the church is referred to, in, especially in, in, the, in the New Testament, as the bride And if you're taking notes, you can add the bride of Christ. The reason it uses this metaphor in the New Testament is because the church, the relationship, the connection between Jesus and his church is built on love. It's built on relationship. It's built on communion. And I want to read a passage in Ephesians 5 that is um, talking about marriage, but it also gives us some hints or some insight into how the how God views his church. Ephesians 5, chapter 25, husbands, love your wives. We just came through Valentine's Day. I hope you did that, okay? Now, um, if you missed Valentine's Day, just apologize. She'll forgive you. 
go get her a gift, get her a card, whatever, write her a letter or a note or whatever. Just husbands love your wives. Okay, that's all I'm gonna say on that. Now, moving back to the church. It says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. Now, I could preach a whole series on this passage alone, but just briefly, I wanna point out some observations. First of all, Jesus loves the church. He gave himself up for his people. He sacrificed himself with a humble, selfless love for you and I. The church is also called to submit to his leadership. Now, in a marriage context, I don't know if you married people out there can identify with this, but there were some things that I valued as a single person that I had to give up once I was married. For example, one of my core values and the way I like to live as a 22-year-old college student, I did not have a roommate in my dorm room and I had a really cool system on how to differentiate between clean clothes and dirty clothes. Clean clothes were in the closet, dirty clothes were on the floor. Very simple. It worked for me. And so uh, when I got married, I employed, I, 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 I put into action that very same system. The clean clothes were in the closet, the dirty clothes were on the floor. Really quickly, I realized that I had to give up that core value in my life. I had to uh, have a conversation and we need, I needed to give up something that was personally important to me for the, the, and, and find a mutual agreed upon uh, principle on which to operate my life. Now I'm obviously being facetious, but you know what's funny? Now I hate it when my kids throw their dirty laundry on the floor. It took me 16 years to get there, but I'm there. My son, uh, sometimes he uses our shower, and so like I come into my bathroom and here's his dirty laundry laying on my bathroom floor. And I'm like, Landon, get down here, pick it up. And I, it's, yes, the irony is not lost on me every time I say that. My wife would say, man, he's growing, he's doing so good. Okay, so anyways. That's just one area, but you, I think you get what I'm saying, is that when you enter into a marriage relationship, there's things that you have to give up to find and agree upon the mutual. For example, our ambition, our purpose as a family needs to be agreed upon. The way we spend our money needs to be agreed upon. The way we spend our time with each other needs to be agreed upon. It's not just my idea, it's not just her idea. And so there's mutual submission. We begin to align ourselves and we, and we value the same things. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us as a church. As a people, we are called to begin to value the same things that he values. Now, I would also remind you that he has moved in our direction. What he requires of us is not some super high standard that's impossible for us to live up to. He meets us where we are, but he's asking us, he's calling us to let go of what we selfishly desire and begin to get our eyes intentionally onto what he wants us to value. This is true in any relationship, and this is true in the relationship between Christ and his church. We also take on his name. Ladies, you probably took on the name of your husband, or at least you are willing to to say, I am married to this person. 
When Mindy and I got married, we did not uh, you know, do it in secret. We did not hide the fact that we were married. We wanted people to know. We proclaimed our love. We shouted it from the housetops, right? We had a wedding ceremony and all that. We invited everybody we knew and we had all the music. We had all, because we wanted people to know that we were beginning our marriage together. And it's the same between Christ and the church. He wants us to take on his name, to take on his likeness and to not be ashamed of that. The metaphor also reminds us that this is not simply about religious practice. This is not just about coming in and and singing some songs, attending a service, um, going through quote unquote the motions and then going back to our normal life and then coming back to repeat it the next week or the week after. It's more than religious practice. This is a, a connection with our maker that is built on relationship. Here's what characterizes human relationship. Human, it could be friendship, it could be family, it could be marriage, but um, you need to be faithful. You need to be loyal. You need to be kind. You need to, you need to have some, some level of devotion. You need to have some sort of communication. Any relationship that is healthy depends on these kinds of things. And so God calls us to be faithful to him, to love him, to devote ourselves to him, to, to communicate with him, to hear from him and for us to speak to him through prayer and through uh, worship. There needs to be some sort of connection, time spent with him. But I also remind you in the context of this, we are, I want you to understand that as the bride, the church is, is we're not married to Jesus yet, quote unquote. We're in the, in the stage of being engaged or betrothed. And this is borrowing from Jewish uh, like wedding tradition. The groom was chosen, or the, the groom's father would choose who the bride was to be for his son. Then the, the, the groom would go and nego- negotiate a price uh, with the father of the bride. Once that was agreed upon, then he would go back to his home and build and prepare a place for him and his new wife to be. And then on and a time that was not scheduled, it was just whenever he was ready, then he would come back take his his bride, go back to his homestead, they would have the ceremony, the celebration, and then they would enter into their married life together. That's how this progression is designed to be. And so Jesus, the Father chose you and I to be the bride. Jesus negotiated a price. He paid that price. Through his death and resurrection, through the shedding of his blood, and then he has gone back to prepare a place for us. He literally said those words in John. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions, or a better uh, translation is many rooms. And I go to prepare that place, so then I'm coming again to receive you back. He's coming again. And so the church as the bride is waiting in anticipation for Jesus to come and, and, and deal with evil as it, it's meant to be dealt with and then to usher us in and to rest in eternal life with him forever in heaven. That's why we are called the bride. The second thing, if you're taking notes, is that to, the, another metaphor that, that is used to describe the church is a family, a family. In fact, we sang about it today. It says, he calls us sons and daughters. We are ransomed by the Father through the blood. When the disciples went to Jesus and they said, they had witnessed him praying to his Father, which I know that kind of blows our minds, like Jesus is fully God and fully man, and yet he's praying to his Father. 
I don't get it either. There's three separate beings of God, but yet they're all God. It doesn't make logical sense, but, it, but it's true. But Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, when you pray, say these words, our Father, which art in heaven. He begins with this context of relationship. Again, kind of uh, coming away from the, the picture of the bride and now viewing us as children of God. Romans 8, 15 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Moving on from that metaphor in John 1, or 1 John, we are, we are referred to as the children of God, and here in Romans, we are called adopted. Now, even in Western modern-day culture, when we hear or, or see or read the word adoption, we understand its context. And it's very, and the context here in ancient times is very similar to modern times. Obviously, there were children in the first century whose parents were, were gone or, or killed. It was a very brutal time in history. In fact, in some sources I've read, the average life expectancy was around 40 years of age. And we know Jesus himself was crucified at just 33 years. It was, it was an incredibly brutal time to live. There was no like courts or high laws that was like really concerned about human rights and all this kind of stuff. It, it was just tough times to live in. And so there was, as you can imagine, a lot of children who were abandoned or neglected. And so what would happen is, sadly, a lot of those children were just on their own. But in Roman culture, the, the, the father of the Roman household could make a legal decision to adopt a, a, a child. And as crazy as it sounds, um, the legal standing of an adopted son or daughter would have been stronger, it would have been a stronger position in the family than the biological kids. Because in Roman law, there was no legal way to break the, the, uh, the uh, law or the, uh, the adoption relationship. So once a child was adopted by a Roman family, it could never be broken. Sadly, biological kids could still be disowned or abandoned if the father so chose to do that, but not an adopted, not an adopted child. And here's what Paul was saying in this passage. He was saying, the father has chosen you. You're not his biological kids. You were abandoned. You were neglected. But he has pursued you. He has chosen you. And he has called you into his family. He has said, you don't deserve it. You, it there's nothing you did to, to earn it. But you can be called by my name. I'm inviting you into my family. And by the way, I'm never, ever, ever going back on this agreement. Your standing with me can be permanent if you want to step in and accept me as your father. How cool of a thought is that? And if there's one thing that's helped me understand the heart of God, um, it's parenting. <laughs> now, I don't have adopted kids, but I have biological kids. And one of my favorite stages when, uh, when they were kind of little is that uh, three-year, four-year kind of range. They weren't quite in school yet, but they were potty trained, okay? So, and they could talk, and they could tell me what they needed or wanted. 
And uh, one time my parents were visiting, my, my parents live in Pennsylvania, so they don't get to see uh, my kids that often, but they're staying with Mindy and I for a week or so, and I still had some stuff to do here at the church one day, and, and when I came home, my kids, just like every day, they just ran to the window. We have a window upstairs, and it overlooks the driveway, and when I hit the garage door opener on my car, the garage door that was going up is right underneath their, their playroom, and they could hear it and feel it and they knew dad was home and they would run to the window and they would pound on the window and press their faces to the window and they would scream and holler and say daddy's home and my dad you know he was you know he's grandpa he's playing with him he gets totally ignored like boom whatever he's doing drop what they're doing with him straight to the window to see who's home it's me they rush down the stairs as soon as I come through the door it was like boom hit me okay there was no fear. There was no like, dad, like, is it okay if I come and greet you at the door? Like, are you okay with that? No, there was no asking. It was just full on excitement, devotion. They ran to me, often with their arms outstretched because they wanted me to pick them up and hold them. Now I'm not, it's not lost on me that the teenage years are literally right around the corner and so, Already that's starting to dissipate, okay? It's, it's starting to become, oh, just, it's just dad. Like, he's, he got home, okay? It's just. Now, if I say it's, it's dinner time, then it's the, the, same, the same response. So it's starting to change. I get that. But I think this is what, the, what Paul is trying to say. He uses that term, Abba Father. It's, it's kind of like what he's trying to describe is this picture of a child who's running to their dad and saying, Daddy, 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 pick me up arms outstretched. And here's what, one of the reasons or several reasons why I think we're described as sons and daughters is because he wants us to know we're loved, we're chosen, we have things like access to the things that he has access to. For example, my kids, they can go to my fridge or my pantry and they can get food pretty much anytime they want. Now we've learned to put the cookies on, cookies on the top shelf, okay, and, and put the more healthy stuff at the lower shelves. So we've, we have some rules around that, but they have access to my food that quite frankly you do not have access to. They have access to my home. They can kind of come and go as they please. They have rollerblades and bikes, and we live in a neighborhood that's um, got a walking path, and we have different rules and boundaries, but they know they can operate, they can go inside and out, they can play, and then they can come and go, but they don't ring the doorbell when they come back in. Is it okay if I come back home? No, they just walk right through the door. You cannot do that. Uh, another thing that they do is in the middle of the night when they have a scary dream, for example, um, they can come down to my bedroom and poke me. You, you can't do that. <laughs> I have literally been punched in the middle of the night because my wife has, you know, because they go to her side of the bed, actually, because they know that I'm going to be, like, instantly grumpy. When you wake me up, I'm just telling you. Like, I'm going to be mad. But um, my kids have learned to go to her side of the bed, and sometimes she will let them sleep in our bed, and then I get punched, like, about an hour later, like, because my kid throws his arm or whatever. They have access to me that no one else has because they're my kids. And when you are called into the family of God, you have access to the Father that quite frankly no one else has. If you're not in the family of God, you don't have the access to the Father 
like those who are called sons and daughters. He wants you to have that kind of love and and attitude towards him where when you're angry or depressed or lonely or frustrated or hurt or scared or even caught up in sin or you mess something up, you know what? Like when my kids break something or do something, they know they're in trouble. I want them to know that they can come to their dad and he can fix it. Now, we might have some consequences and some rules so that to try to teach them not to get in that same predicament again, but I want them to know they can come to me because I love them, even if they did something that was wrong. That's the kind of access that the Father wants you to know you have with him. So he calls us sons, he calls us daughters, and he wants us to to lead a healthy and holy life. He's even provided to you things that you need to live as he has called you to live. And all of this is, of course, in the context of relationship. And then finally, thirdly, the church is, 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 it's, it's a bride, it's the bride of Christ, it's the family of God, it's an army. It's an army. Jesus uh, refers to this um, a little indirectly, but somewhat directly in Matthew 16. I'm gonna read a couple of verses starting in 17, but before I do, I just want you to know that as I was growing up, my dad's a pastor. I've been a part of the church, whether I wanted to be or not. Like he, he drug me to church against my will a few times when I was younger. But um, I've been a part of the church my whole life. I've never really viewed the church in, in a way that was like optional. And because of that, because I've been in the church for a long time, I heard, uh, I've heard a lot of sermons, I've heard a lot of teaching on the Bible, and anytime I heard this passage referred to, then I made some assumptions that I'm not sure was entirely true. And so I wanna um, just press into what what seems to be the actual case with this passage. In verse 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And we're gonna see just the next verse he's talking to Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And by the way, the context of this is they, he asked them, who do you think the Christ is? And they said, it is you. We believe you to be the Messiah. And he says, it has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but has been revealed to you by the Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, one of the things that I assumed when I would hear teaching on this is that Peter himself was referred to as the rock on which Christ would build his church. And if we uh, fast forward in, in, in the timeline a few, a few months or, or, or however long it is, I'm not exactly sure, but in Acts chapter two, Peter is the one who preaches the very first sermon after the ascension of Christ and like 3,000 people come to know Jesus and are baptized. And that's the launch of the New Testament church. And so in my mind, I'd always kind of, okay, Peter has this, this, Jesus addresses him in Matthew 16, and then he preaches that sermon, that's what it's referring to. But it's more than that. Because I don't think that Peter himself is the foundation of the church. We read that Christ is the cornerstone. And men, even Peter, men are flawed. Pastors are flawed, church leaders are flawed, and so the church cannot be built on any one person. This church is not built on 
Pastor Keith Wagner. If you are attending church because you just really, really like Pastor Keith, that's great, but that's not enough. Because this church, Grace specifically, should be on mission and should surpass the time that Keith is gonna be here. It should surpass my time. So if your foundation of your faith is built on a man or a person or a pastor, a leader, that's not enough. And so what's logical to me is that, well, Christ is referred to as the cornerstone, so maybe he's referring to himself that he is the rock, that he is the foundation of the church, and I think that's absolutely true as well. But I also think it's more than that. And I I didn't understand this, and I was actually studying this passage just uh, this week, and I came across a study And it brought out a whole other side of this. See, Matthew 16 takes place in an area in in ancient Palestine. It was near the city of Caesarea Philippi. And this city was situated near a mountainous region containing Mount Hermon. By the way, Mount Hermon is where the transfiguration uh, of Christ took place, if you kind of want to connect these dots. But in the Old Testament, this region was known as Bashan. Bashan was the, the place, uh, an area that was controlled by two kings, referred to in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and in Joshua. And these two kings, there were two cities that were, that were there, and I'm probably going to butcher these pronu- the pronunciation here, but Ashtaroth and Edrei. And they were home to a certain kind of people called the Rephaim. And these were descendants, and I don't want to get too like crazy here, but these were descendants of, uh, if you read in Genesis 6, in Jewish theology there was a a belief that there were demons that came down uh, from the spiritual realm and began to um, populate um, the earth with their offspring. Crazy to think about. There's some thought that this is where, like, Goliath, like the giants came from, these types of people. And in Jewish tradition, theology, this place was associated with this kind of evil. Sadly, in Jewish history, we know that, like, for example, King Saul, King David, then King Solomon, there was great prosperity in the, in the Jewish kingdom, but then because of idolatry and sin, we know that Babylon would, would take over and the, actually the Greek uh, empire would also conquer this area. And Israel, the, it was all because Israel had fallen into idol worship. And it's not just like, when we think of idol worship, I think, at least in my mind, I just think of somebody that's just kind of praying, praying to this statue. Way worse, way worse. Um, like I said, this was a very brutal time for people to live in. There was like literal child, like child sacrifice going on. We can't imagine the depth of evil here. And there was like, these places were consecrated to the worship of Baal, the worship of Molech, Ashroth, like the kind of worship, the depravity, the evil that was represented here before the children of Israel were called into this land to conquer it was unimaginable. In fact, one of the reasons why it seems like God is so brutal in the Old Testament is not because he's brutal, it's because he, he his justice demands that he deals with evil as it needs to be dealt with. And I think all of us would understand that a good judge doesn't look at a murderer and say, well, I feel sorry for you. Um, I know you killed somebody, but because I I want you to have a good life, I'm going to let you go. No, a good judge says, I'm going to sentence you, and then we're going to try to help you, but I'm going to sentence you. I'm going to quarantine you. 
And so God looked at this depravity, and and again, I can't stress how evil and sickening it was literally involved the murder of children. That was part of their worship. And God said, I cannot stand for this anymore. I'm going to deal with it. And he was gonna use the people of Israel to bring about (laughs) what we would call today human rights. He was going to deal with evil and restore healthy culture. But they didn't do it. They didn't finish the job. They fell into, sadly, idol worship themselves. And then the, the kingdom is split, conquered, and then even some of the kings of, Is, of Israel and Judah, they began to build places of worship. And Dan, one of the cities that we read about in the Old Testament, is a place of worship dedicated to Baal. Greek empire comes in, conquers this area. They dedicate Mount Hermon as a place of worship to the god of Zeus. And so Jesus, after all of that, is standing here with his disciples they know what this region is known for, spiritual depravity of the worst kind. In fact, in some of these cults, that's what I'll call them, they literally, literally believe that here was where the entrance to hell was geographically located. And so when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, On this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against it. He was almost literally pointing to the gates of hell, at least in the disciples' minds, and he was saying this mountain that you see here that's dedicated to all this evil and and, and horrible demonic activity, this, this, it's literally a central hub of satanic worship. I'm going to replace it, I'm gonna bury it under my church. This is where I'm gonna build my church. It's not gonna, so in other words, evil, evil, Satan, whatever darkness is out there, this place is not gonna be known for that because this is the place where I'm gonna build my church. Now this is both figurative and, and literal, but because we know that the church came out of Israel. But it's also a metaphor because what he was saying is my church is gonna be the aggressor. In fact, if you study the original language of this passage, there is no Greek word in this passage that is translated against. So to take that word out, what it does, it puts the church on the offensive. And you might be sitting here today thinking, well, the church, let's just kind of hang on till Jesus comes. There's not a lot for us to do. We're in the minority. We don't have a lot of voice. We don't have a lot of say. Is there really a difference we can make as a church? Yes. The church is an army. The church is the army of heaven, and we are called to bury hell. Okay, you guys are not responding like I thought you should. Does that encourage you today? We are a part of a church. We are part of Grace Bible Church and the church, and we are on the move. We have the power to literally bury hell. So the influence that Satan has in your life, he wants to destroy your home, he wants to destroy your family, he wants to destroy your kids, he has no place there, he has no authority there, because Jesus has declared that he's going to bury him. So if you're a part of the church, here's why you need the church. You need to be in this army, because we're in a war. You're in a fight for your home, you're in a fight for your own soul, you're in a fight for your family, your friends, your coworkers, we're in a fight. But the victory has already been promised if we do it his way, if we follow him. Now I would love to end it there, but in two minutes I I wanna give you some just very brief application. 
want to leave you with this main thought before I get there. The mobilized, unified church that is passionately pursuing Jesus is going to bury hell. Now, I don't know what that should, will look like in your personal life or in our specific church or in the global church, but here's what I know, is Satan is going to be defeated. He already is. But in the here and now, what is our job? Why do we need the church? What, what are we to do? First of all, if you haven't already, you need to enter into personal relationship with Christ. Our mission statement says that here at Grace, we're all about uniting people to Jesus and helping them take their next steps. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And, and to do that is a simple act of faith, to acknowledge that, God, I, I don't have all the answers. I need you to be Lord of my life. The, the scriptures say that if we simply believe in him, believe in the one whom God has sent, believe that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The next step after that is to commit to grow in your knowledge and devotion to God. We cannot earn our way into God's good favor or grace, but once he has changed us, once we allow him to become our Lord and Savior, once we accept him, we have a responsibility to step into a, a process of growth where we learn, we study his word, we commune with him, and we allow him to begin to realign and, and prioritize the values of our heart. Thirdly, we need to take the, the responsibility of taking up arms, in a sense, of being a part of his family and his army. Here at Grace, we talk about taking next steps classes, maybe entering into church membership, serving. And again, these are not our tools to manipulate you. If you want to serve elsewhere, serve elsewhere. If you want to give money elsewhere, give it elsewhere. You don't have to give it to us, but here's what we believe is that when you are part of a family, when you are part of an army, it comes with responsibilities. And those responsibilities include growing in our knowledge of God and aligning our priorities with him. Your money, your time, your treasure, your talent, your skills, who has gifted them to you? And there's a principle that I don't have time to teach in full, but the principle of the first, we wanna give God the first of what he's given us as a sign that, that we say, God, everything I am, everything I have is yours and it's under your lordship. The fourth thing is to serve in, in, in a way that reaches others. Because what I just talked about is we believe that the church is still God's plan for the world. Yes, we're flawed. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we don't have all, all things, the answers to every single problem. And Keith would be the first to admit that to you, that half the time, we don't know what we're doing. If you think that we do, sorry, uh, just gonna lay it on the table, didn't try to, to, to trick you or fool you. We don't know what we're doing half the time but we're giving it our best and we're trying to learn as best we can and lead as best we can. And some of you are involved in that and I wanna say thank you. But if you do feel like you don't have a role to play in the church, I promise you, you do. From the least to the greatest, however you think of it, you have a role to play. There's something for you to do. And above all else, in context of all of this, we're to love each other and to be unified in mission. And I'm two minutes over, and that's where we're gonna push pause. And we're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks, okay?
So, uh, Edgar is, uh, Pastor Edgar is going to be preaching next week on what it looks like to grow in character, and then I'm going to come back the week after that, and we're going to hit what it looks like to, to be in unity with each other, even if we may disagree on a few things. So don't miss that. Come back on March 3rd. Okay, uh, I'm going to um, pray, and then I'm going to dismiss you. Father, thank you so much for the kind attention of those that are gathered here today. May we be uh, an army. May we know that we can be a part of your family. And Lord, we thank you for loving us as the bride. Father, may we step into the role that you have for us to play. May we be what you have called us to be against the, the forces of evil, uh, uh, against hell. Lord, may we not give the, the enemy any authority in our lives, but help us to walk out of here encouraged and in strength, knowing that you are leading us and you are with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. For those of you who call Grace Bible Church home, the annual meeting is on March 3rd. If you have more questions about that, let us know. If you know what that is all about and you're looking for the voting guides or whatever else, you can see those, uh, get those out at the Next Steps wall or at the Welcome Center. Thank you guys for your attention. We will see you next week.